I was overwhelmed and I just I just sat down in the middle of all of this bustling around and uh, sat on the grimy <laughs> grimy green astroturf. It just instantly grabbed me. I was absolutely captivated by the project because it's so hands-on. I was at the home of Representative Juan Mendez, helping him write a speech for the upcoming American Humanist Association conference, and we got a knock on the door. That's Sarah Blaine, and my name is Evan Clark. And we answered the door, and there were two men there who were so sunburned that their skin was literally blistering. Um, They were both kind of intoxicated. They were stumbling around and they were asking for a ride to the grocery store. As she describes it, one of the men wanted to use his nutrition assistance card to buy some steaks for his friends staying in the park. They were all experiencing homelessness, street homelessness, which means they slept outside instead of in shelters. So we did it. We took them to the grocery store and I bought them a bunch of steaks and bacon. I guess people like to wrap steaks and bacon as a vegan. That's not a thing that I've known about before, but I got a notebook for one of the guys who talked about how he really liked writing and he just, he didn't have anything. He didn't have any possessions. And we went back to the park with them and, and we sat and just hung out with these guys Sarah and I met four years ago at a humanist conference in Columbus, Ohio. We were both speakers. She was a lobbyist for a civil liberties organization in Arizona, and I was a board member for a national nonprofit. Because I'd known Sarah for a few years, the story didn't surprise me. She's open-minded, caring, and radically inclusive. And it didn't surprise me that she was inspired to do something about how people experiencing homelessness are viewed. She's often talked about being troubled by the way we draw lines between each other. In this case, it was the lines between people who have homes and people who don't. And the first thing that had struck me about them was the physical condition. I mean, this is in Phoenix in the summer. It it gets over 100 degrees almost every day. And they were trying to walk I I don't know you know a mile and a half maybe to the store and they were dehydrated both from lack of water and from drinking alcohol and I had not seen sunburn like that and um, it was very disturbing and there are also these really interesting people really cool people they had really really fascinating stories They're living on the margins of society. And so my experience with them sort of gave birth to the project. As she put together her plan to do something powerful to address homelessness, she made one phone call that quickly turned the concept into a tangible project. (laughs) She gets these fires, and that's what it was. It was a Syrah fire that was lit, and it wasn't going out until she did something. And not just something like giving $20 or... Uh, you know, volunteering at a shelter. She needed to do something. That's Corey Harris, who Sarah knew from her work at the Arizona legislature. They both lobbied at the state capitol and chatted regularly about how to support one another's advocacy. 
Corey was the government liaison for an organization that served homeless veterans. And it turned out the organization's women's shelter was in jeopardy. The situation of the shelter actually was brought to my attention when I reached out to my friend Corey Harris, who who works at the Madison Street Veterans Association. And I was actually reaching out to him because I had already decided that I wanted to do this project. And he was like, this is so perfect. I need to fundraise because we're about to lose our shelter. And they were trying to just keep the shelter open long enough to be able to secure their own sources of funding. The project she came up with is one of the most unique and powerful stories I've ever heard. It's also one of my favorite examples of experiential activism. And she goes, well, what if I live on the street without shelter until we raise the money? Now, I thought it was the best idea ever. The project was essentially a publicity stunt. Sarah, a 34-year-old mother of two, would sleep on the streets of Phoenix with people experiencing homelessness until she raised $56,310. That number represented $2 for every person in Arizona who spent time homeless in the past year, and it would provide desperately needed gap funding to keep the women's section of the Madison Street Veterans Association open. She called her project Blistering at the Margins. It's a reference to the extreme sunburns and extreme marginalization she witnessed that day in the park. But not everyone understood the project at first. Here's Sarah's sister, Alethea. When she told me that she would be using her vacation to live on the streets for a month, I kind of thought that she was crazy. Blistering at the margins did initially seem crazy, but that was part of her plan. The idea was to be provocative enough to get people to pay attention, and once she had their attention, Sarah planned to tell stories that would motivate people to help. However, for it to succeed, to make the experience authentic, Sarah had to make some radical sacrifices. This next story is hard to imagine. A woman let go uh, of her apartment, her money, her time. Why? To become homeless. That's right. For the last 10 days, she has lived on the streets of Phoenix, and she'll continue to do so until she can raise enough money and awareness to save a Phoenix veteran shelter for women. Chris Rapsky has her story. On this vacation, Sarah Blaine isn't flying anywhere. I'll be back again. I get four weeks of vacation, and this is, this is how I'm spending it. Sarah only took with her a backpack, a blanket, and a baritone ukulele. She chose to begin her experience at the Phoenix Human Services Campus, only a few blocks from the Arizona State Capitol she typically lobbied. The campus hosts a wide range of service agencies, all in one place, including a clinic, a day resource center, and a shelter. This facility has the highest concentration of people experiencing homelessness in the state. The Human Services Campus is a really strange place. It has a feel like a prison in a lot of ways. Um, There are bars around kind of all of it so they can lock it down at night. Um, It's very, very crowded, so it's strange to be in an urban setting where so many people are just lounging around. 
The heat in the Phoenix summer reaches upward of 110 degrees, and the effects on people are visible. It was almost akin to seeing seals lounge on the warm rocks along the ocean, she told me. But she described the rocks as concrete benches, and there's no ocean to cool off in. Uh, it's just, it's so hot. It subdues every, like, there's, it's just crowded and slow moving. Um, people are dirty. A lot of people dis- who, who visit the campus describe the smell as being really uh, overpowering and gross. But starting here, Mansarah was able to immediately interact with the homeless community, both those experiencing homelessness and those working to solve it. After a quick tour of the campus with Corey, he left. Suddenly, Sarah was on her own, trying to imagine what it was like for people who are actually experiencing homelessness, while trying to navigate this unfamiliar, disorienting place. So I walked out onto the astroturf, and it was hot. The sun was just cooking me already. I had a backpack on. I could feel the heat just that sweat building up between my back and the backpack. Uh, It was sweat coming down my legs and looking all around at all kinds of different faces, young people, old people, all different races. So such diversity uh, and different levels of sort of dejected looking faces. Like a lot of people looked blank and tired. Um, Nobody looked sort of welcoming you know sometimes when you look around a room you make eye contact with somebody and you sort of feel like you belong I and I wasn't catching eye contact and I was overwhelmed and I just I just sat down in the middle of all of this bustling around and uh, sat on the grimy <laughs> grimy green astroturf to to look around and kind of decide what I needed to do next most nights She slept on a blacktop parking lot across the street from the Human Services campus. It was one of the few places the police didn't ticket people for sleeping on the streets in Phoenix. Hundreds of people stayed there each night. And Sarah found that many of them were in highly vulnerable, desperate circumstances. I remember one night when I was going into the parking lot to sleep, there was a blind guy Carmen that I had met earlier in the day and he was laying on the the blacktop uh squirming around he was also he he had been in, in a wheelchair he's not able to walk so he was laying on the ground squirming around trying to find his blanket and he couldn't find it and there were two police officers right right near him and they were kind of telling him which way to go and directing him, but they didn't want to touch him because they were afraid of uh, diseases like MRSA and TB and bed bugs. Um, so I just walked over and asked if it was, I asked the police officers if it was okay if I helped, um, which was so strange to feel like I needed to ask permission <laughs> to to help. But, you know, I, I was, I was beginning to learn to be shy of police officers. Um, so I just got down and kind of scooped him up and moved him over to his blanket and moved his wheelchair close enough to him that he was able to touch it so that he knew where it was. Initially, Corey was the only person who joined her on the streets overnight. But she quickly made friends with several people experiencing homelessness, and she became part of their community. They definitely created these little tribes, and uh, that was 
unique to see. And she got absorbed right into one right away where they took her in and she took them in. And it was interesting to watch how they all took care of each other. So as I was sitting there sweating and being confused and a little overwhelmed, uh, a young young guy came up to me. Um, I don't know how old he is. I'm going to guess, but like mid twenties though, uh, blonde, really happy, friendly face. Uh, he came up to me and said, you're new, huh? (laughs) Uh, and I was like, yeah. And he said, let me introduce you to some of the women here. Uh, you shouldn't be sitting out here by yourself. Um, so he took me back into the day center where he introduced me to some folks he knew who are also experiencing homelessness so that he could kind of connect me with the, with the women and get the, help me get the lay of the land. And, uh, we all kind of became close throughout that time period. As each day passed, Sarah promoted her project in every way she could. Brett and her other new friends taught her about the bus system and the light rail system. They helped her find places to charge her phone and use a computer so she could keep the issue in front of the media. But the physically taxing experience of being without shelter did not make things easy. So after the first night, I already felt really exhausted and stupid. I mean, just we'd been in the sun all day. I hadn't slept particularly well. um, And I I just was exhausted and there was no getting away from that exhaustion. And I did, I did ultimately learn to sleep better. I I had pretty solid nights of sleep out there, but being in the sun all the time just takes a toll. And we tried really hard to stay as hydrated as we could, but it was very clear to me that my cognitive skills were declining and it was embarrassing, you know, taking media interviews and feeling like in the middle of a sentence, I would totally lose track of where I was. Despite the exhaustion, Sarah blogged. She sent reporters press releases, and she kept posting to Facebook and Twitter. Quickly, she started to capture the attention of activists locally, and then across the nation. And so it was through social media. I don't remember if it was one of the blogs or Facebook or something when people started talking about Sarah's project. And I went and read her blog. She's a great writer. She's just a terrific communicator on top of uh, what she was doing. And it just instantly grabbed me. I was absolutely captivated by the project because it's so hands-on. That's Dale McGowan, who in 2013 was executive director of Foundation Beyond Belief, a 501c3 charitable organization that supports humanistic projects around the world. He describes Blistering at the Margins as one of the most humanistic projects he'd ever seen. And I think humanism at its best, that's one of the things that it does. It tries to say, you know, we're, we're looking at human interest. We're looking at uh, um, how to help our fellow human beings on this planet who are we're all born into the same... Um, uh, complex situation that we have, and some of us have uh, more resources, more uh, ability to, more privilege, uh, the ability to uh, give back, and uh, here she was actively doing that. So to me, that was just an, an absolute encapsulation of humanism. 
Sarah's stories of interacting with people in extreme vulnerability day after day in the shadow of the state capitol are seemingly endless. It was something she couldn't get used to, so she kept telling these stories. So right next to the Human Services campus is St. Vincent de Paul, and they have a massive soup kitchen where they serve hundreds and hundreds of people every day. And about an hour maybe before their meals start, a line begins to form and it snakes way outside and around. And um, it's sort of crazy to see how many people are, are lining up to get food. But I was standing in this line, um, and noticed there was a man sitting on a cement bench thing um, trying to button a button-up shirt. And he, his hands were so arthritic and bent that he couldn't get the tiny buttons that are on um, the sleeves of the shirt and, and the, the buttons that button down the top of the collar. Um and so I, I walked over to him and asked if I could help. And he, he said, yeah, you know, he was just having trouble with the little buttons and he had a job interview that day and, and just needed help buttoning his shirt. But it was so hard to see somebody so helpless in, in a situation like that, just like not even being able to, to get their own buttons. I mean, and so his, his barriers to getting back into the world, you know, were, seemed so immense. She also started to gain media traction. Her project was highlighted by the Phoenix New Times, the Arizona Republic Channel 12 News, and by a few national nonprofits. This helped get the story about the Women's Veterans Shelter published in national publications like Military Times and USA Today. A groundswell of new supporters began to get involved, including Arizona State Representative Mark Cardenas, a veteran himself. He went so far as to join Sarah on the streets for a few nights and lobbied the governor for state funding. But the challenges mounted, especially physical ones. Sarah's weight had been a concern, and her doctor recommended that she gain five pounds before starting the project. But that didn't help her with some of the environmental dangers she ran into. Um, I got heat rashes. Um, I had bruises that I don't even know where they came from. I just started getting bruises on my legs. I'm assuming that's from sleeping on the, on the concrete or the, the blacktop. Um, I had ants in my hair. <laughs> Um, I, I got all kinds of different rashes and bug bites and, um, and I did get a little bit of heat exhaustion at one point and needed IV fluids at the, at the ER. And again, that experience, it really highlighted the difference between my situation and actually experiencing homelessness because you can get ER care as a person experiencing homelessness, but there's a bill that comes with that, right? And I just got to pull out my Blue Cross Blue Shield. You know, there were, <laughs> I wasn't treated poorly. Um, and that, that's not how it happens when, when it's real. The fact that Sarah was able to access high-quality medical care both to prepare for this project and while she was doing it stood in stark contrast to the experiences of her homeless friends. She told me about a woman 
who was only able to get half of a set of dentures through an assistance program, and then no denture adhesive. She met a man who had major abdominal surgery discharged to a parking lot that he was sleeping in. His incision site became horribly infected. And her friend Brett, he ended up needing medical help as well. And in fact, I went to the ER with Brett at one point because he had an infection in the lining of his testicle. And it ended up just being excruciatingly painful. So we went to the ER and he was really, uh, people were dismissive and he was kind of shuffled around. It was not, it was not the same kind of attention that I'm used to having. Sarah showed me a picture of Brett that she took right after they left the ER. In it, he's laying on a dingy, bug-infested astroturf surrounded by garbage. He's curled up in agonizing pain with his head on his backpack, still wearing his hospital bracelet. It's a disturbing scene. And as Corey explains, seeing so many people in so much need began to weigh heavily on Sarah psychologically. I noticed with Sarah, um, I mean, just the, the toll that it took on her uh, emotionally. It was, it was clearly not an easy thing for her to, to be out there. And, uh, you know, she would go out some days and she would play the ukulele to, to raise money to be able to eat. Or, you know, just seeing, and it wasn't just because she was having a hard time. It was that for her, this was very real, of course. And seeing the challenges that all of her, you know, her tribe were going through and trying to help them and seeing that there were roadblocks where they weren't getting taken care of, that that took a toll on her on top of the fact that she was away from her kids, away from, you know, her, her home and, uh, and going through this, this very uh, difficult experience. I don't think that that was easy uh, for her, as it I don't think would be for anybody. When all was said and done, Sarah had slept almost a month on the streets of Phoenix and raised over $38,000. And while all of the donations were meaningful, Sarah was most touched by the support that came from an unexpected place. The Madison Street Veterans Association has a morning meeting with their, with their guys and Corey and I were able to come and talk about the project that we were doing, the fundraising project we were doing. And up until that point, they had not known that the women's shelter was in jeopardy of closing. Sarah explained how her goal of raising $56,310 for their sister shelter represented $2 for every adult who had spent time homeless the previous year in Arizona. And after we had finished talking... Uh, and everyone was leaving. A guy reached in his pocket and pulled out $2 and handed it to us and said, here's the $2 for, for the time I spent being homeless. And one by one, other male veterans started to do the same. I just... It, it was just so beautiful. I felt so honored that they were putting trust in me to, to help, and that they wanted to help, that I can tell this story of people experiencing homelessness, being good-hearted, helping people, because we have so much stigma attached to homelessness, and we have an idea of what those people are like, and we view them as dangerous or depraved or whatever, and they're just they're like us and um they are us 
And so it was just, again, it was an honor to, to be a part of that. Sadly, the shelter wound up closing anyways, because it failed to secure long-term government funding. What she wanted to do, though, was never just about the money. She wanted to humanize an issue most of us can't relate to. She wanted to better understand others' experiences. And ultimately, she wanted to tell a story that her friends and family couldn't ignore. So to see my sister do something so brave and so powerful that I still receive thank yous from now that I can talk to people on the streets that are homeless and just have an open communication and see how they're doing and what their lives are like. I normally wouldn't have done that before. And now I can hear their stories and how they're just like us. And I am so proud that not only has she changed my life, but the community here as a whole opening their eyes. And also the homeless that are still on the streets. A couple months ago, I ended up talking to a lady outside the courthouse and she said, tell your sister, thank you so much. And, um, it just is, it makes me want to do more and be more involved than I am. Uh, it was, it's honestly one of the greatest undertakings I've ever undertaken in my life. It was, uh, even though at the end of the day, uh, you know, I ended up, both Sarah and I ended up leaving our, our uh, respective positions at our jobs over this situation the women's shelter closed and, uh, but I'll tell you, it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And later that year, Dale McGowan and Foundation Beyond Belief asked her to be their first ever recipient of the Humanist Innovator of the Year Award. The idea was to look at somebody who was doing something really new, something that was really innovative um, in terms of putting humanism to work uh, in a compassionate way. And uh, hers was the first project that we recognized that way at our first uh, conference when we gave her the award. The award was designed for humanists who didn't just make an impact on the world, but also inspired others to use innovation for change as well. And that is exactly what it accomplished. In fact, it inspired this podcast. The Humanist Experience is a project inspired by Blistering at the Margins, where we'll travel the country for the next 12 months experiencing and interacting with modern social issues. We'll use narrative and experiential learning to humanize the most critical challenges facing our society. So that's the power of narrative. And if there's somebody who can do it well and take the time to do it, the problem is that it takes patience. You know, it's much easier for us to take an outrage and throw it up on a blog or to put some stats out there or argument or whatever but the kind of thing that Sarah did, it, it takes time and patience and skill to actually go out and have the experience and then process it in a way that other people can walk inside of. You're actually creating an opportunity for them to walk around in somebody else's skin. And that is, uh, um, that's just fundamentally different from um, uh, the kinds of things we typically do. Our next year will be filled with opportunities to walk around in other people's skin. We'll learn about the drought in California by living in a town that already ran out of water and by spending time with the people living that reality. We'll discuss body shame and nudity by staying at a nudist retreat with people actively challenging mainstream messages about the body. We'll bring attention to food deserts 
by eating only meals we can get from a gas station, like the 23.5 million Americans who live in areas with no access to fresh food. Most importantly, we'll tell stories, and we hope we'll erase the lines between ourselves and other people. And the necessity of storytelling is perhaps best articulated by my co-host for this podcast, none other than Sarah Blaine herself. Stories really help us to understand and connect to things that are that are happening. And homelessness, and particularly street homelessness, seems so foreign to most people who are in in privileged places. It just seems like something that can't happen to us. It seems like those people are not like us. And in order to create empathy and to get an actual productive response from people to this issue, we have to find a way to make that connection. So when we tell stories that show how people in these circumstances are just people like us in different circumstances, It's th- that's how we get people to care. If you would like to support the work of the folks you heard in this episode, please visit our website at humanistexperience.com. That's where you'll find links supporting Foundation Beyond Belief and the Madison Street Veterans Association. Special thanks for this episode go to our Master of the Dark Arts, Gustavo Youngberg, our guests, Corey Harris, Alethea Nosek, and Dale McGowan. The Humanist Experience is produced in collaboration with Unbelievers Media, LLC. Our TV clip came from the Arizona Republic and KPNX Channel 12, Phoenix. And interview locations were made possible by Eden DeRayal and Gangplank of Chandler. You can follow our trip on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spreaker, or whatever fancy podcast app you use. Our goal is to post a new podcast every two weeks from now until November 1st, 2016. Wish us luck and bear with us as we learn this whole podcasting thing. We're your hosts, Sarah Blaine and Evan Clark, and we'll see you next episode. That's Corey Harris, who Sarah knew. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.